Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am excited and honored that my friend Elizabeth Alexander is joining me in conversation about parenting and philanthropy. Elizabeth is president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the nation's largest funder in arts and culture. She's a celebrated poet who composed and delivered her poem, Praise Song for the Day, for the inauguration of President Barack Obama in 2009. She's also a scholar, an educator, and an author. She wrote a glorious memoir, Light of the World, in which she beautifully shared her love and loss following the sudden passing of her husband, the artist Fikre Gebriesus. Truly, she defines the term Renaissance woman. But perhaps most importantly for the purposes of our conversation, she is the mother of two sons, Solomon, 22, and Simon, 20. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Elizabeth. <laughs> Hello, Carol. I'm excited for our conversation. Oh, so am I. And I thank you so much for joining me to talk about parenting and philanthropy, two of the many things that you know a lot about. So I often start parenting conversations with a bit of advice that I like to follow and I try to live by, which is one should parent the children you have, not the one you were or the ones you wished for. So I'd like to start with hearing about the child that you were, little Elizabeth Alexander. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is such a good question. And I think there are probably different answers to that question. Um, I think that I was a I was a curious child. I was a reading child. I was a dreaming child. I was a funny child. I was a chatty child. Uh, and um I was a child with a very adventurous spirit. And ah. um, I think also being uh, raised, my parents are Clifford and Adele Alexander, but let's talk about my mother, Adele mm -hmm. Alexander. Mm -hmm. um, that also meant when I think about some of the things that she gave me, uh, I was a well-mannered child. Uh, <laughs> I was a, a, a person whose mind went outside of the lines, but who operated more or less inside of the lines. I uh, was someone, my mother gave me the great, great gift of voracious reading. My mm. mother herself uh, was uh, always, always, always reading. Uh, my mother, both of my parents, but my mother in particular, um, actively revered education. Mm -hmm. um, so that was always the bottom line, um, that uh, I would be um, serious about those pursuits, although there was no expectation or understanding of where exactly it would, would lead. I was not directed in any particular way. Mm -hmm. uh, I just knew I was going to college. And uh, I was uh, also, when I was a young person, and this is thanks to my mother, a very, very, very serious dancer. Uh, but interestingly, as the family lore goes, when I said that I wanted to go to the newly established Duke Ellington High School of Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., where I grew up, mm -hmm. uh, that was not the plan. And, you know, <laughs> when I think about it, I, I think there was a very good lesson in there. I mean, of course, you know, I was furious. Mm -hmm. uh, but the lesson in there was that you could be very, very, very good at something and very, very good, devoted to something. Mm -hmm. But maybe not good enough to be one of the few people who could mm. really achieve it as a profession. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I think that probably uh, my mother uh, recognized that 
college was the better bet. And <laughs> she was correct. Um, uh, and so then the next question becomes, how do you keep your joys in your life? How do your mm-hmm. joys evolve um, mm-hmm. as you begin to focus in other ways? Um, from my father, uh, the kind of child I was, uh, was the child of a righteous man, the child of a race man, uh, mm-hmm. the child of someone. I mean, all, all of my people on both sides were race people. Um, but what I saw in my father and learned from my father was fight and persistence and mm. justice and sometimes you have to, you know, raise your voice and be a pain in the neck about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that nothing is handed to us. Uh, and so uh, to be someone who was a fierce advocate in some kind of way mm-hmm. and who also understood that any um, thing that any privilege that I was afforded the opportunity to to study further uh, mm-hmm. or to, you know, find an interesting job or to, to be in any space that it wasn't because I was the only special person in the whole wide world. And that unless I, uh, you know, opened the door if I could or understood that there were others, that mm-hmm. there, there are always people who are smarter than, than we are. <laughs> uh, and so to have um, an analysis of what that meant uh, but also how to always operate in the spirit of, of community and race and generosity uh, was, um, that was the fierceness I got from him. You have a very long, extensive, and very impressive history of higher education in your family. So your, your father went to Harvard College, Yale Law School. He went on to become the first African-American secretary of the army. Your mom got a doctorate in history, and she taught African-American history at George Washington University. And so while I was inter- I'm interested to hear you say that there wasn't any expectation or any real pressure, but I'm really curious about that because their accomplishments were less common in their generation. And so did, how did they convey to you, other than suggesting that you not go to a school for dance, <laughs> that how did they convey to you that your, um, your potential for being very well educated was, was to be met? Um, well, I think that it, it literally wasn't a question, but the thing that was that didn't feel uh, uh, pressury about that was mm-hmm. they never said, we think you should be of this profession or of that profession. Mm-hmm. We think you should have this job or that job. We expect you to go to law school. We expect you to have an advanced degree. When I graduated from college, I became a journalist. I went to work at the Washington Post. I didn't think I would ever go back to school. Um, that wasn't my plan. Now, it turns out it was my mother's plan, but (laughs) she had not, she was clever because she understood, I think perhaps that to sort of lay it out and, and certainly nobody thought they had a a poet in the house. I mean, that was not anything that, that anybody imagined. So, um, I felt the freedom to become who I was, Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, the just the expectation um, that if you have the opportunity to learn, you keep on learning. I think also to take it back further than my parents, it's important to know I was born in Harlem, USA. That's where both mm-hmm. of my parents are from, uh, a, 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 a place that you are of as well. So you're going to understand the milieu that I'm talking mm-hmm. about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what it means to come from a community that is an extremely diverse Black community, mm-hmm. uh, a community that has uh, artists and doctors and lawyers and garbage collectors and every kind mm-hmm. of Black everything, which also mm-hmm. was the Washington, D.C. I grew up in, 
Washington mm-hmm. at the time was 75% black. So diverse black communities were what I always lived in. Mm-hmm. And to my grandparents uh, uh, in Harlem um, and to my great aunts and uncles. And, you know, these were people who were doctors at Harlem Hospital and uh, the artist Charles Alston who painted the murals at, at, at Harlem Hospital. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was a social worker on the maternal side uh, who worked at, for many, many years at the YW. BCA. And my paternal grandfather was the building manager of the YMCA in Harlem, uh, the great and storied oh, Harlem at Y. 135th Street? Wow. Yes. yes. Um, and then was uh, the, the first and longtime building manager of the Riverton Apartments. And in that capacity, um, a sense of civicness and a mm-hmm. sense of a mighty Black community that would be built by many different kinds of people contributing according to their talent and ability mm-hmm. um, was just what was the norm. Uh, on the education side, on my mom's side, uh, it goes back even further. I mean, her um, grandfather was one of Tuskegee's founders, its first trust treasurer, uh, who helped build the school along with her grandmother, with Booker T. Washington and others. Um, Mm. And so um, even though by the time I in college read Du Bois and read Booker T. Washington and said like, up from slavery, I don't, you know, (laughs) that's not me. (laughs) Who is this Negro? (laughs) Um, To think about these people who were born enslaved, Mm -hmm. born enslaved, creating institutions for people a generation out of slavery is something that I didn't think about a lot growing up, but Mm -hmm. I certainly think about it now uh, that I'm uh, charged with the work that I do at the Mellon Foundation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. So, so here you are, you're, you're an academician. Um, You're, you're, you're working at Yale, I believe before you had your sons, is that correct? Before you got married and had sons, you certainly have been in academia before you got married and had Um, sons. Yes, I, um, I uh, um, earned a master's degree in creative writing um, at Boston University, where I studied with the poet Derek Walcott. And that's where I discovered I was a poet and became very serious about that. The next step after that master's was, okay, she wants to be a poet but there is no job called poet. So <laughs> what will she do? Uh, and um, at the time from my college years, I had become very, very excited learning about African-American literature, learning about women's literature, mm-hmm. learning about all of the incredible uh, tools and discoveries and archives uh, that were being unfurled in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, my undergraduate advisor was Henry Louis Gates Jr. I worked for him on something called the Black Periodical Fiction Project, which Mm. was a, um, we were going in in microfilm uh, through 19th century newspaper archives to uh, discover uh, work by Black women. And so having exposure to archival treasures uh, Mm. and helping tell a story about Black creativity that was otherwise not told would have been lost. Um, was amazing. So after I had that master's degree, I thought, well, you know, if I got a PhD in English, I could, and if I went to one of the few places where I could study African-American literature deeply, 
Well, mm-hmm. that would certainly be interesting. And I had always taught. I actually, when I was in college, I taught dance at a community center and I taught in the Yale New Haven Summer High School to New Haven public school kids. And mm-hmm. I, I liked teaching. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I like to read. <laughs> I like black culture. I like to teach. And uh, I was able to, um, to get uh, PhD fellowships, mm-hmm. which meant that, that it just seemed like it was a sensible thing to go to school. And the academy then, then became a place where I could not only be an educator, not only be a scholar, but also be a writer. Um, so I was at Haverford College, then I was at University of Chicago, um, then I was at Smith College where I was um, the first director of their poetry center, um, and from there I went to I went to Yale. And it was around that time uh, my position at, at Yale developed after I had, and this is an important part of the story, um, on a semester there met my husband to be, fell in love. And at the moment when I would have been going up for tenure at the University of Chicago, uh, made everyone think I was crazy, but said, like, I got to go because <laughs> it was time to time to start my family um, uh, and time to make my life with this extraordinary person and the best decision I ever made. And so the f- professional pieces sort of all came together once even though I was no longer on the strict track that I had been on before. Wow. I didn't know that part of the story. That is great. So yes. you found him and you said, I'm going to change my plan. So that, that is yeah, a great- Yeah, he actually found me. <laughs> but then I allowed myself to be found. And, um, you know, I did see a lot of people um, in the academy. Um, it, it, it was sort of a norm to say, oh, um, because it's, it can be hard to get jobs in the same places. So two academics says, all right, I've got a job at University of Hawaii. You've got a job at University of Alaska. We'll make it work. <laughs> and, um, and, and that it's hard to make that work. Um, and right. I was certain about this person and I was certain about uh, wanting to have children. Mm-hmm. And I was certain that, you know, I, I could work. I would find a job of some sort mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that it might not, you know, be exactly the thing that I had envisioned, but I didn't envision, uh, you know, fancy job X, Y, Z. I, you know, tried to create opportunities and then make choices. That is a perfect example of how you describe yourself as a child, thinking outside of the lines, but figuring out how to be, how to stay within them. <laughs> so, Well, and how, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think, I think now about um, what it means to be an inside outside institutional creature, mm-hmm. um, because um, I am a creature of institutions, but I also believe in evolving existing institutions. Um, and if building an institution, which I've helped do outside of the academy with an organization called Cave Canum that is designed to support the work of Black poets, thinking about if you have the rare opportunity to build from scratch, what are some of the principles that are really important? But I think most of the institutions we enter, you know, to t- to leave them better than they were hopefully when we came in um, and to leave them uh, more equitable uh, mm-hmm. than when, when we came in, which I think together means leave them more powerful 
than when we came in. And sometimes that works and sometimes that's frustrating, but um, uh, that's just to sort of echo your points about inside outside. I want to back up just a little. And now that you have not only been very well educated, but you have um, had a tour of some amazing universities across the United States, you have these two children. And so you're steeped in, in the college world. What is your perspective on how they should view learning? Were you able to um, squash any expectations you may have had as to how they would approach being educated? Um, the way I thought about my children's education has to be contextualized with the, the life that my late husband and I wanted to make for them, of mm-hmm. which formal education was one piece. Um, we wanted them to be joyful, to be curious, to be people of the world, uh, to be black men of the world. Their father came to this country uh, from, uh, he is from Eritrea in East Africa. He mm-hmm. left there during the war as a refugee uh, and went first, lived in Sudan, then lived in Italy, then lived in Germany, then came to the United States and spent uh, most of his adult life in New Haven, some of that time in, in New York. So, um, and we had on his side, family all over the world family in Africa, family in Europe, family all over the United States. And the reason that those people were scattered was because of war and history and colonialism. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and their father spoke seven or eight languages. Um, huh. And those languages were a part of a story of, you know, he, he, had, a, he had, a, had a knack, but also, you know, as you know, on the African continent, People tend to speak many more languages than we do here. And then there, of course, is the story of what happens when you do migrate. If you if you go at the age of 16 on foot from Eritrea to Sudan, Arabic becomes helpful. Mm -hmm. If you go, he was schooled in Italian because of its colonial history. The colonial history then changed and Amharic. Uh, became the colonial power over Eritrea. So his mother tongue of Tigrinya was no longer the public language. So that was always his language. Then when he came to Italy, okay, he had that language. Then when he went to Germany and was of high school age. So think about the kids seeing all of that. um, And the value of that is to be adaptable, to belong to the world, to be curious about the world. Uh, their father had been through so much growing up uh, uh, in a time of war, but he had also grown up in a very, very, very magical home and a very, very rich and beautiful family and extended family context. So, you know, the power of his spirit was that having gone through many difficulties, he had a joyful spirit and that when he had children, there was nothing that made him happier or more content than his family. So mm-hmm. we uh, tried to make a magic garden for them to grow it up in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what we wanted. There was always there, music and there were books and they had their own library. And uh, we had, you know, friends, our friends were many different kinds of people, but many of them were creative people. And when we invited people to come visit for dinner, then we would say, spend the night. And then we would say, okay, let's Let's hang out the next day. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a sense of, of time and being with people and learning from people. Um, when friends uh, came from far, far away, sometimes they'd come and stay for a really long time, which was something for me to get used to. Um, <laughs> but it meant that they were growing up in uh, an environment of generosity and all of this before they ever went to nursery school. Ah. Um, so um, I think that when we, what was nice about the choice to stay in New Haven, where at the time, though a painter, my husband and his brothers uh, owned, uh, 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 they were restaurateurs and they owned a kind of legendary and very special New Haven restaurant called Cafe Adulis, and Fikre was the chef. Um, and so New Haven was um, a, a wonderful place because, you know, nursery school is a walk away. Campus is a walk away. The restaurant is the walk away. The studio mm-hmm. is a walk away. Um, and it, it was a controlled environment in the best way. It was also an environment where, you know, there was tremendous stratification and questions of race and class were ever present. Mm-hmm. So when my children were very small, very small, before kindergarten, when we'd be driving around town, I remember one time Simon said, you know, Mama, how come the houses here, you know, are all broke down and the houses here are big and large and the brown people are over there and the mm-hmm. white people, are, I mean, it's just what they see. You know, I see a mm-hmm. cloud, I see a balloon, I see a dog, right. you know, they, they right, just right. noticed. So that becomes an opportunity to teach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, all of this is to say, when we were choosing schools for them, uh, and I remembered, um, you know, being uh, fretful as one is, you want to make the right choice and you apply and are we going to get into the school that we like and how do we decide? And, uh, and you know, many of the schools were not as diverse as, as we had hoped for. I remember my mother saying, make the best choice you can but she said, they do live in your house, don't they? <laughs> you know, by which she meant you're not just giving your children to the school. Right. You right. are staying, you are the, still the primary influence on your children. And, and also, I think that one of the things that I learned from Fikre, who, um, you know, in another set of political circumstances, probably would have had a PhD in something, you, you know, had his <laughs> education not been interrupted. Uh, he did end up with an MFA from from the Yale Art School, but um, not, you know, in sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, what I saw in him, and actually, which is a part of how I'm made as well, is we both revere autodidacticism. We both understand that the classroom is not the only place where you are educated and that you have to read out of the syllabus read outside of the classroom, augment, follow your curiosity, um, learn, 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 learn. And so that was uh, not only the, the world that we made for them, but also a philosophy about how to approach even a fantastic education is that there's always more. Wow. That is wonderful. <laughs> that is wonderful. I would like to bottle that up and pass that on to parents everywhere. What a wonderful approach to teaching and learning. So, and your sons have gone on to college, both of them, and they they're thriving and happy scholars. And so it worked. I mean, you were able to convey to them so much about the world. So that is that is great. Well, they're pretty. I mean, and I, I'll just say, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm about them. Um, is that um, 
so my oldest son, um, Solo, as we call him, um, graduated from college and is working um, for Brian Stevenson at the Equal Justice Initiative. And what I'm really proud of, uh, I mean, I'm proud that they're kind people, mm-hmm. happy people, healthy people, that they love black people, that they respect women, uh, mm-hmm. uh, more than respect women, that they are, you know, through and through to the bone. Um, they are feminist young men. I, I'm proud of, um, they have, they have grace. They show their love. They show their affection. They're devoted to each other. So there are a million things I'm proud of. But I mentioned Solo's work to say that um, they both have a sense of culture and community mm-hmm. and they both have a sense of service. And so that's what I am, am, am proudest of. So that in Solo's work, uh, he's uh, combining um, working with some of the incarcerated people who the organization serves and also uh, with some of the uh, historical research that's very much a part of um, the museum and the memorial and the the whole output of, of EJI. So it's that whole combo that, um, I think is, is, is pretty splendid in both of them. Wow. That, that really is. So you, you have actually taken us down the path to the next question. And that is, I want to turn to the concept of building a village, which you've already talked about in terms of the village of friends that came to see you and stay with you. So when you read your memoir, A Light in the World, it's clear that your husband, your family, your sons in New Haven, you thrived in the midst of a, of a family, a village of family and friends and neighbors. And then after his, the, the, his tragic loss, you moved to New York with your sons and, and almost cr- you created another village almost physically <laughs> by moving very close to your parents. And, and I, I'm a, a huge proponent of the concept of, of the village that helps to parent. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, the importance of the villages you've built and then how you went about creating them. It seemed as if it was intentional. I mean, this was a plan. Yes, very intentional. Um, and I think, you know, I come from, um, my blood family is very small. Uh, mm-hmm. I have one younger brother, two years, and my parents were both only children. Oh. So I grew up without cousins, aunts, uncles. Uh, and my brother and I always, one of our childhood promises to each other was that we would, we would make cousins. We always said, <laughs> uh, and we had this whole idea, you know, like cousins, you know, they, they seem to be the most special people in the whole world. Um, but I think that, um, what that always meant was because there were very, very special people who were family friends, that the thing that I wanted to do is not make a fetish of blood family only. Mm-hmm. And to say that uh, extended family, as you say, village, chosen family, um, that that's how we get all the way through this life. That's how we get all the way through this life. This is a reality of the generations. If you think about the beautiful practice in um, often in black communities of being auntie, uh, oh, to, absolutely. to many, 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 uh, different people, <laughs> which for me, I've been lucky enough, you know, so I have, I have actual nieces and nephews. I got a lot of them from Fikre's side. He was one of eight. Um, uh, and then there were also other ones who weren't direct nieces and nephews, but they were of the right age to be auntied. Um, <laughs> and that we were the ones, you know, he did something very different by marrying out. Uh, mm. And by settling in the U.S. So um, that we became and we were two artists. So, you know, for for the kids who felt like they had to choose a certain path, 
Right. You know, right. we were the ones who said, well, there are a lot of paths. I mean, we respect people's parents, but I think it's very important to have those other folks who say there's more than one way to do this. Absolutely. You know, I was the auntie who said, like, for God's sake, it's okay to cut your hair. Don't tell your mother <laughs> I told you. It's just hair. <laughs> you know, and so I think that um, that was always our role. And then for all of the decades that I was a teacher of college students, mm -hmm. um, uh, with some of those, they became very dear and very special to me. And there's great intimacy that happens inside a classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have, you know, generations of former students out there who, I mean, we have love between us mm -hmm. uh, and we still exchange ideas. And I think also, you know, thinking about what does it mean um, in Black communities to think about what we would call queer family, um, mm -hmm. which means, I think, not only families with queer people in them who are actually mm -hmm. in our families, but also chosen parts of our families. And to say mm -hmm. that, you know, that's the same... Uh, auntie or uncle as anybody else who might mm -hmm. have children of their own, um, which I understand because I was an auntie quite some time before I was a mother. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think that, that, that we all like, yes, motherhood is a, a, a true and sacred thing, but we all give to these children. But oh. if we think about queer family as also meaning it doesn't have to be 2.5 children, a mother and a father. Uh, and that we have to understand that there are also times in our lives where we really are comadres with people, uh, where we are really doing it with someone that, mm -hmm. you know, I my children were 11 and 12 uh, when my husband died. So that meant that parenting, like, yes, I was, I, I am their mother. I single mothered them, but it was happening with, with other hands involved. And I think of the shape of our family as being uh, a queer family in that it made its own beautiful flower. Mm, mm, absolutely. I, I can't tell you how important it is that I always talk about this, that, that families, even if they're large families, make room for aunties and uncles. You need that third party. You need that person who your child can go to if they can't go to you. I mean, you need that. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And also just to say that also for me, that's how I got my girls. I mean, nothing has given me more joy in life. Nothing gives me more joy in life than, than my sons. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm so happy that I've had uh, lots of borrowed daughters. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it strikes me that the concept of the village becomes even more important now with respect to our young people, our boys in particular, and the concept of mental wellness. Um, I'm particularly concerned about um, how our children stay strong mentally in the face of the one-two punch of the pandemic and the social injustice which has raged over the past year. And you actually wrote in a New Yorker essay um, uh, in June, last June, called The Trayvon Generation, that this generation is more vulnerable and more traumatized than the last. How do you think that we can use this village concept to support the notion of getting our children whatever help they may need. We as a people have not always run towards embracing the need to get help if there's a, any kind of mental wellness issue. But it strikes me that yeah. as a village, we may now be able to do more to watch out for our children and, and help them. Yeah. You know, my father is 87 years old. And, and I think about stories that he's always told us about you know, growing up in Harlem in the in the 30s and 40s and that 
The first time he had an encounter with the police, he was eight years old uh, and that his mother taught him. You memorize their badge numbers, Mm. uh, but you don't talk back to them and we and we will deal with it later, which was an extraordinary thing also for a mom, a black mom in the 30s and 40s to say, I will go down to the police station. I will confront these police. But that was my grandmother, Edith McAllister Alexander, who was extraordinary. Wow. So, you know, so I think as we know, being over-policed, racism, you know, disproportionate violence, all these things are not new. But what I do think is new, and this is what I wrote about in that piece in the New Yorker, the Trayvon generation, is that they are seeing this. It is replicated. It is filmed. We are seeing this over and over and over and over again with all of, you know, they're seeing it. They've seen it 20 times on the school bus before they get to us. Right. They have, have looked at, at, at black people, at black young men, at black children, at black women being murdered. And it's, it's replicated. I I remember so well, uh, when, um, that extraordinary picture that, that circulated of, um, Philando Castile, Mm -hmm. uh, and you see the officer's gun coming in the car window and you see the baby and you see the fiance, uh, and, and it's, it's a a view from within the car that I think might've come from her cell phone. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was on the front page of the New York times. And I remember having this thought like, I have to get the paper. I have to get all the papers so that the kids don't see this image, but you cannot keep them from it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we have all become used to it. But I think what we have to stop and say is like, no, this is, this is traumatizing. You know, this is traumatizing. So how do we slow it down? How do we talk about it? How do we make room for their feelings. I mean, I'm asking rhetorical questions that are in a way an answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you, you know, we can't, my, my, my kids know one of the, the, the jokes is uh, I say, how come you guys turned out so well? And they say, they, they, they sort of repeat, you know, because you never took your eyes off us. (laughs) 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 But of course you have to take your eyes off them. We want them to be independent. We want them to figure out how to solve problems themselves. Right. We want them to be free. We want them to be free. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm offering more questions that aren't one answer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, except that I do believe, um, I do believe in time and overcommunication. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe in um, deep and profound and expressive love and safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think an old, an old trick that's a really good parenting trick is, you know, when you can make your home, the home that people make it welcoming to, for the kids to come visit. Absolutely. Come, I would always say, I will cook for them. Mm-hmm. I will cook for them. I don't care how many kids you want to have. And so <laughs> at, you know, in that moment where, you know, I'm sort of puttering around and we finished eating and they're having their own conversation and everyone is fed and it's, you know, and you kind of come in and out of it. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, providing, um, a safe haven, um, I think, I think really, really makes a difference. Um, sometimes in those moments I have taken a kid uh, aside or followed up with Mm -hmm, a kid mm -hmm. who, you know, we didn't get to finish the conversation about the breakup. 
or about, you know, the, the, the job they're looking for, mm-hmm. uh, or about the course they failed. Yeah. Yeah. Or about their fears. You know, these are, these are young black men for the most part. They're the things that they fear. Um, so I just think making time and space for them, it's gotta, it's gotta do something. Oh, I absolutely. I, I agree. I'm, those are great, great suggestions. And I, I love the, the cooking for them. It, it's the equivalent for people who uh, live in the city, for the people that get in the car and drive their kids places. You know, you're in the front driving yes. and they're in the back. <laughs> but if you have them at your house and you're cooking and they're just in the other room, comfortable being themselves and overhearing and just, it is the best thing. I absolutely agree. Yes. Finally, I, I want to just turn to sort of the global village concept, and that is to your work in philanthropy. Um, through the, your work with the, first the Ford Foundation and now through Mellon, you have seen firsthand the power of, of philanthropy to, to create a global village and to contribute to a, a fair and just society and, and to change lives. It's really important to me that parents understand the importance of talking to their children about philanthropy, about giving, about a giving tradition from a relatively early age. How would you suggest that parents begin talking to their children about a giving tradition? I mean, making it a, as opposed to just knowing that they do it, encouraging their children to do it as well. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think, you know, you touched on something that I, I want to expand on because it's really, really important. I think that the, the traditions of generosity and giving that are very much a part of Black communities, I think we need to talk about it on a continuum with philanthropy. Mm-hmm. I just about don't know a Black person who hasn't helped pay for the education of another child related or not before we even got to our own children. I don't know a Black person who hasn't tided someone over. Mm -hmm. I don't know a Black person who doesn't have people in their extended family who don't need certain kinds of help at certain points in time. Mm -hmm. Um, Then, you know, more specifically, when I look at my own family, I think about one of the things that that Fikre would do whenever um, people would come, you know, all these people I talked about who would come (laughs) through town, um, he would take them to the bookstore. And he would buy them hundreds of dollars worth of books, bags full of books, (laughs) books that they couldn't get wherever else they lived. Right. Books for the young people. Talk to them about that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think that there is 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 just a practice. If you think about people who we take in for a period of time Mm -hmm. uh, in the family, which is something that we've done uh, several times over. Mm -hmm. Um. And then when you put that against, even with economically successful Black people, where we still stand in the relative order of where the wealth is in our society. Right. So that um, even um, our most extensive wealth, uh, you know, um, sometimes doesn't compare uh, to some people who sometimes I just think like, they are so average. <laughs> and they've got all this goddamn money. <laughs> You know, I mean, like what we could do with those resources, not everyone. Right. You know, I think that you probably saw that Oak Park, Illinois has just started a black reparations program that is calculated from redlining and property values and how that limited generational wealth for black people. Now, isn't that interesting? That is. All of that has to go into thinking about our philanthropy. Now, black folks and money. Here's what I think. My father always 
showed us, took out the, you know, this is how much money I make. This is my checkbook. I'm writing the bills. This is how much the gas costs. This is, you know, he mm-hmm. always showed us what he was doing with the money. My grandfather took, I re- you know, I remember we were dating ourselves generationally, but the first little bank book, little, you know, when there was the, not the checkbook, but the little bank book. Right. And how special that was, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, to, to go like properly to the bank and do your banking business. And I did this too, you know. Kids know everything about the money. They they see it. Mm-hmm. And we also have a practice that we do where, you know, we, we I give, you know, throughout the year, but um, at the kind of end of the year moment, mm-hmm. I sit and talk with the kids and I say, okay, you know, what we have a long conversation. What do you think is important? What do you think needs help? How do we think locally? How do we think globally? One of the wonderful things about working at the Mellon Foundation is that our own matching program, matching gift program is very, very, very generous. So when I came to Mellon, suddenly there was much more personal resource to play with. Mm-hmm. And so to, you know, to bring the boys to the table and, and say, okay, let's Let's look, let's hunt. Okay, you like that? Is that the best organization for that thing? Mm -hmm. You're concerned about climate? You're concerned about racism? How do we narrow these things down? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. What is your responsibility to the community that you literally live in, the identity that you're literally a part of? And how do you think about, you know, other things? I mean, we're not the only people in the world, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Um, And how do you give strategically. So they see me when I think about, um, uh, about Yale, my alma mater, uh, is I don't have the resources that would make a difference. I, I can't write a check big enough to dent like the general Yale, right? <laughs> you know, um, that would, that would be a, a waste of my money. Um, but I can think, okay, mm, you know, the Afro-American Cultural Center, you know, is under-resourced. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to, to direct there? That sort of, of, of thing. And um, I just think not mystifying money um, is really important. Uh, perhaps it became even more important um, uh, after their father died. And I, w- and I was able to say to them plainly, okay, here's what I know I can do, mm-hmm. I will, you know, I will educate you. I will educate you as far as you want to go. I will always be generous to you. But like once you're educated, then you have to support yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, here's the math. And so I think that's good. I mean, I think that's actually good whether you have the resources or not. Absolutely. You, you know, for kids to know clearly where their responsibility begins. But I think just being very, very transparent you know, I have found is the way to go actually about most things with them. I, I don't, I don't overshare, but I do think, my goodness, if we don't teach them about money, yikes. Absolutely. I, and I, I'm glad that you mentioned that it's, it's this philosophy is independent of the amount of resources that you have because yes. all children should understand the way that finances work from an early age so that there's no, there's no emotion. I mean, there's no shame. There's no anything. It is what it is. You pay the bills and that's that's what money's for. And, and the power of, of philanthropy, the power of the concept of giving, and it can be giving of time. It it can be giving of money, but the ability to make an impact to your point about um, how you decided to give money to Yale, you can 
with with a relatively small amount of money, make a big impact. You can gather with your friends and everyone can give a small amount and it makes a bigger impact. But if targeted giving to a problem that your family decides that it wants to solve, if even if it's something as simple as something in your neighborhood that you want to make better, is a, a means of, of developing philanthropic thinking. I mean, I, I think the, the, the concept of compassion and empathy are are so important for us to um, to develop in our children, and what better way than to get them, as you have done with your sons over time, and and to to get them to just think about beyond themselves on a regular basis, <laughs> to think about first how money works, <laughs> so that you understand mm-hmm. its power and its its limitations, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. secondly, how to to use it to make an impact, which, you know, it's, it's a, such an, a, a cliche, but it's so true that you actually, by giving, you help not only the person you're giving, but you're really helping yourself that the, the feeling of being able to help someone is, is, uh, is, is such, is so great and can't really be replicated with any other way. And I think also, Carol, you know, it's a life skill too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm pleased now that the kids are a little bit older, you know, everyone, can feed themselves. (laughs) Um, You know, um, everyone can clean their space, clean up after themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everyone, I mean, there are, 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 are life skills uh, that are, are just a part of being uh, a responsible uh, grown up person. Elizabeth, I am, I am so happy that you have been here with us today to talk about parenting and philanthropy and all the valuable lessons that I've gotten from this conversation and I, my kids are grown. So, <laughs> Oh, well, we're still pushing, still parenting them, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, and so before we go, I am just going to ask you to please play the GCP bonus round, which I ask all of my guests to play. And hopefully okay. it, it, there are two very brief questions. And the first one, should be pretty easy for you. <laughs> and that is, um, I'm so excited a game. Yes. You're, I, yeah. I hope I'm, I'm nervous though. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, you will, you will be fine. And the first question is, please tell me one of your favorite poems and you can name your own <laughs> by all means. Um, but, I, but I wouldn't, um, I think, um, what, uh, maybe, one of my favorite poems is Gwendolyn Brooks's third sermon on the Warpland. Ooh. And it's what has the incredible uh, repeated refrain in it. Conduct your blooming in the noise and whip of the whirlwind. Uh, I love that. I love that too. That is great. And second question is two favorite children's books. And they can be from your childhood or books that you like to read to your sons. There are so many of them. Um, and I would say one book that I, I, keep, I, I keep around now um, is William Steig's Amos and Boris. I love oh. all the William Steig books, but um, Amos and Boris about an unlikely friendship uh, between a whale and a mouse is um, very, very poignant and beautiful. So I, I love that book. And um, I love, um, there's a book by Maurice Sendak mm-hmm. called Higgledy Piggledy Pop. <laughs> it has a lot of poetry in it. Higgledy Piggledy Pop, the dog has eaten a mop. And it's about um, the main character is a dog named Jenny who runs away from home 
to um, become a star on the stage. And she runs away from home to find herself. And she has many very, very difficult uh, adventures. Um, but ultimately, she's reunited with her chosen family. Oh. So I haven't thought about that in ages. Thank you for the question. But oh. uh, but that's a, a beautiful book. Well, those are two that I don't know. And so I thank you so much, Elizabeth, for your time and for your, your wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Thank you so much, Carol. This was absolutely lovely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for such a great conversation. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it and that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You'll also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. Thank you.